Hello, I'm Nicole Aberdeen and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation, the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia and to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes at nicoleabody.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. My name's Nicole Aberdeen, and I'm delighted to welcome you to the Books, Books, Books Sydney Law School podcast series, in which I'll be interviewing a wide range of Sydney Law School academics about their latest books and work. We'll be covering many different fields, including criminal law, international humanitarian law, competition law, and constitutional law. I hope that you enjoy listening to these conversations as much as I have enjoyed having them. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the first episode of the Books, 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 Sydney Law School podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Associate Professor Emily Crawford about her recent monograph, Non-Binding Norms in International Humanitarian Law, Efficacy, Legitimacy and Legality. It was published by Oxford University Press in 2021 as part of its series, Oxford Monographs in International Humanitarian and Criminal Law. Let me start by telling you just a little bit about Emily. She teaches and researches in international law, international humanitarian law, and international criminal law. She's published widely in the field of international humanitarian law, including three monographs, Treatment of Combatants and Insurgents Under the Law of Armed Conflict in 2010, Identifying the Enemy, Civilian Participation in Hostilities 2015, and the book we'll be talking about today, Non-Binding Norms in International Humanitarian Law, Efficacy, Legitimacy, and Legality. She's also co-authored a textbook, International Humanitarian Law with Alison Pert, second edition published by Cambridge University Press in 2020. Emily's an associate of the Sydney Centre for International Law and a co-editor of the Journal of International Humanitarian Studies. Emily, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. As you point out in the introduction to your book, the law of armed conflict or international humanitarian law is a highly regulated area of international law. There are multiple treaties and comprehensive customary international law. However, as you say, one criticism that's frequently made of the area is that it's slow to predict new developments and to deal with them in a proactive way. I'm wondering what you thought about that. Do you think that that is a fair criticism? In some respects, absolutely. There has been a a shortcoming in that those who uh, adapt and adopt new laws haven't been particularly forward-thinking in in too many respects. So it is an accurate criticism, but I I don't think it's a, a fatal criticism in the sense that most most law is reflective. It, it it's responding to something that's just happened that everyone looks at and goes, "Do we have any law to deal with this?" They suddenly then go, "No, we don't." So we should we should do something about it. it it's rare that you find too many forward-thinking areas in the law. Uh, that's not necessarily a bad thing. In the last 20 years or so, states, experts and civil society organisations, such as, for example, the International Committee of the Red Cross, have worked together to produce manuals or guidelines in areas of the law that are either completely unregulated or where the law is unclear or underdeveloped. 
as you point out, these are not treaties and they're not binding. These non-binding instruments are often referred to as soft law. Could you explain what that means and how you define it in your book? So soft law generally refers to um, any any kind of instrument, any kind of provision or document that purports to either state best practice or to recommend a course of action, but that's not binding. And it can include things like a non-binding provision in a binding treaty, one that says um, states should endeavour. For example, that's that's an example of a soft law norm in a binding treaty. Or you can have a document that's completely non-binding, one that says here are the rules we believe are meant to apply at this time and states can choose to adopt or not, not adopt those norms, but they're not a treaty and they're not binding in the same way as they don't compel action and there's no consequence that follows from non-compliance. Is soft law like this one of the traditional sources of international law? Not really, no. So it's not unheard of in in international law. I mean, for example, General Assembly resolutions are non-binding. They're considered to be soft law, but they can they can be very influential and they can uh, eventually assist in the creation of customary international law. And there are lots of resolutions that come from international bodies or or meetings of international organisations, um, especially in the areas of things like human rights law and environmental law where it can be influential and it can have impact, but again, is not binding. One example you give of a General Assembly resolution is obviously the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Would you like to talk a little bit about that and how, what its status is, I guess, under international law? Sure. So when the UN was founded, one of the uh, obvious, one of the stated aims of the, of the institution was the creation of a, a charter of human rights, basically a, a, a binding document. Uh, with regards to stating the fundamental human rights that all people were entitled to. But due to political differences and social and cultural differences, it wasn't possible at that time, 1948, to adopt a document that everyone could agree on that could be binding. So instead, uh, the, the committee that was drawn together to draft the instrument came up with the idea of instead making it a document of the General Assembly that was non-binding but that nonetheless would make a pronouncement on what they considered to be fundamental rights with the ultimate aim of it then becoming uh, a a binding instrument. That took about 20 years until um, the adoption of the binding instruments on the the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights and the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. But the the Universal Declaration, though non-binding, was incredibly influential. Uh, It was considered to be customary international law comparatively soon after its adoption, and it was fundamental in, in leading towards the, the absolute you know, comprehensive corpus of human rights law that we have now. Let's talk about some of the pluses and minuses of this soft law, which you talk about in your early chapter you were referring to later on again. You do make the point, and you had devoted a chapter to this, that soft law is not new to international humanitarian law, that there's been a long history of uh, non-binding norms which have formed part of the corpus of international humanitarian law. Could you just talk now a little bit about what are some of the benefits of non-binding norms such as this? Well, an obvious example is that you don't need to wait for there to be a consensus among states to even begin the process of creating such an instrument. You don't need to be convincing states that they should be sending delegates to a conference to 
debate and adopt a text. It can actually be the work of uh, a committed uh, non-governmental organisation, a civil society organisation, and even in some cases it can be from a group of of experts, either who work in, in private practice or who work in academia. They can, through their own research, have come across an area that they think is neglected or that needs more attention. They just get together, they draft something up, they talk amongst themselves, basically. And so it means that there is a degree of flexibility and speed that happens that, that isn't often replicated uh, with states that can often move a bit, a bit slower in international relations. One of the other points you make is that they can be adopted by non-state actors. Obviously, traditionally, international law is only created by states. And I, I thought that was an interesting point that you make. And that becomes obvious as you look at and analyse the different non-binding norms in this book. But that seemed to be another plus that it's broadening the circle, I guess, of people who in the international sphere can contribute to the creation of law or binding norms. Absolutely. And in the law of armed conflict, that's a really important development because over the past 60, 70 years, the the vast number of armed conflicts that take place in the world are are classified as non-international. So they do involve either two non-state armed groups or or more fighting one another or a non-state armed group or more fighting against a state body. And international law as it currently exists, even though it regulates the behaviour of non-state armed groups, it's nowhere near as expansive as the international law relating to international armed conflicts. So to have non-state groups have an instrument that they can publicly declare that they're going to abide by is a really big advancement in, in encouraging compliance with the law. Let's talk then about what some of the concerns are that have been raised. Uh, one issue that you talk about is that um, concern that they may undermine the international legal system. And I think you refer to Professor now Judge Hilary Charlesworth's argument that they are potentially anti-democratic. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, there's the obvious shortcut, oh, sorry, shortcoming rather, that if this is an instrument that can be created by a civil society organisation or, or a group of experts, the possibility is you're going to have kind of siloing of perspective. You're going to have a small group of people who might have a particular mindset about something who then go ahead and seek to create an instrument that they believe everyone should follow. And it can have the side effect of just putting forward one one particular perspective. Now, of course, this is still an instrument that has to go out into the world and be accepted or rejected by states and other stakeholders. So a a document that is lacking in a, a degree of representativeness and a degree of universality may not necessarily be adopted in the way people are worried about, but there certainly is that risk that you just uh, may potentially put forward just very particular perspectives. And that's where it becomes very important how you choose the participants in the process of creating the norms, right? Absolutely. You do need to make sure that there is a representativeness in terms of the expertise of the people involved, what kinds of legal systems they're drawn from, what parts of the planet they're drawn from. So to make sure that there are people who have uh, understandings of different social, cultural, political, legal systems, and you have to also make sure that there is the appropriate level of technical understanding because you don't want to have, for instance, a document about conflict in outer space and not actually have uh, space experts working on the document to be able to tell you what you're proposing actually physically couldn't happen. That issue of geographic distribution is important, isn't it? I noticed in some of your conversation, your discussion later in the book about some of the 
particular instruments, that there was a concern that they were very much skewed, some of them, that participation was skewed towards the Western countries. Correct. And that does tend to entrench a common law perspective of of international law. It can also entrench a very particular European-American idea of the law. And that is not the only way in which the law is applied and interpreted, and it should not be the only way the law is uh, interpreted and applied. We'll come to talk about that perhaps a little bit more later when we look at the potential issue of bias. Let's talk now a bit about precedence, and I, I think we probably have already touched on this, but what I thought was interesting is you make the point that um, your book, you're specifically looking at the context of international humanitarian law. Could you tell us a little bit about the other fields of international law in which this soft law has been adopted and how it's been received? Sure. Well, the, the three main areas that uh, I identified were international human rights law, international environmental law, and international economic law. And part of the reasons why soft law norms have been used so frequently in those three areas has been that there's been a need to be responsive in a way that treaty law often is often isn't. So there's been a requirement to set some ground rules that everyone can kind of agree on, but that no one really wants to be bound to. Now, that might seem counterintuitive that you want to have rules that no one wants to follow. But it's been more about that people want to have rules that they don't that they can aspire to rather than they're going to be sanctioned for if they fail to abide by them. So in environmental law, it was about a, a, a bit of a softly, softly approach of getting everyone to understand that the environment needed to be protected, that these were steps that everyone should take towards their protection, but that they wouldn't be subject to, say, being brought before the International Court of Justice. Could you give some examples in the, in the environmental field of some of the soft law that you're talking about? I think they're things that will be familiar not just to lawyers but to non-lawyers as well? Sure. So the uh, in the Rio Declaration, there is a, a particular provision that talks about uh, a responsibility to ensure that any kind of development, uh, any kind of sort of business development or development of the environment takes due consideration of what kinds of environmental impact will be had. Uh, on, on the area. So, for example, if you build um, a, a factory, you need to be aware whether that's going to have a deleterious environmental impact. And so the idea was behind that, again, to get everyone to realise that you you don't exist in the bubble, that these acts do have flow-on effects to the environment, and so they need to be taken into account. That's the precautionary principle that you're Correct. talking about there? Yeah. yeah. And that, I mean, that is something that's been in our own courts in Australia adopted in, by Australian courts. So it, it has well and truly found its way, obviously, into state practice Correct. as well as yes. international practice. You look at different categories of these non-binding instruments that have emerged in the area of international humanitarian law over the last 30 years. We can't cover all of them, obviously, in the incredibly comprehensive way that you have in your book. I'm going to focus on the two categories, those that, and, and an example from each. So the first category, those that are state-sponsored or driven by groups of experts, and the second category, those that originate from civil society organisations. In this case, the example we'll, we'll pick is from the ICRC. Um, both of those aim to influence behaviour. You have analysed, I think, 16 instruments. There may be more very closely. And I wondered what were you most interested, before we get to talk about the specific examples, what were you most interested in finding out specifically specifically? 
through this very close analysis of particular examples of non-binding norms. I think my main interest was seeing whether or not there was a correlation between who was involved in the process of creating the instrument and whether or not it ended up having any impact. So I had a theory that the the documents that might have been the creation of a very small group of people or with a very particular kind of political end were less impactful than the ones that involved more people that perhaps were a bit more expansive in their scope. And in large part, that that reasoning was held out. Uh, I, I expected instruments created by the International Committee of the Red Cross were going to have an impact just simply by the nature of the organisation. And I also suspected that the instruments that had only a few people in their, involved in their creation would have had less impact by virtue of the fact that only a few people were involved in their creation, and that was largely held out as well. Let's have a look at an example from each category. So turning to the first category um, where we have these non-binding norms that are by a state-sponsored or an expert group, you give a number of examples. The one that we're going to talk about that I've selected is the 1994 San Remo Manual on International Law Applicable to Armed Conflicts at Sea, which is known as the San Remo Naval Manual. Let's start by uh, me asking you, how and why did that come into being and what was its stated aim? So around the sort of mid to late 80s, uh, a number of practitioners in the field of the law of armed conflict um, who also worked in academia were essentially just noticing that the law of naval warfare hadn't really been given any treaty consideration or, or documentary consideration since before the First World War. And that had been partially prompted by the naval warfare that had taken place in the Falklands War, that there was an awareness there really wasn't, while there had been considerable state practice in the, you know, in the Second World War, obviously, and in, uh, uh, in, in Vietnam and also to some extent in the Korean War, there really hadn't been any concentrated international law focus on the law of naval warfare. So the Falklands War was the one that really kind of crystallised it for people who were working in the area. So a group of experts sort of got together and thought, well, if we were to survey state practice over the last 60 years, what could we say was the nature of naval warfare in comparison to the last document that had been created on naval warfare, which was prior to the First World War? And prior even, well, obviously prior to the UN Charter. Correct. That sort of showed how outdated it was. Exactly. So these experts got together under the auspices of uh, a non-governmental educational institute known as the Institute of International Humanitarian Law based in San Remo in Italy and started having discussions about what do we think the law of naval warfare is now. And the idea was to basically create a restatement of what was considered to be the accepted law of naval warfare based on customary practice over the last 60 or so years. And so over the course of a number of years, uh, a very large group of experts got together over, I think, about six or seven meetings in which this draft was progressively developed and then finally released in 1994 as this manual on the law of naval warfare. Can you tell us about the nature of the participants? Because I thought this was really interesting. They came from a range of different fields. There was certainly a concerted effort to make sure that nearly everyone who might have an interest in a manual on naval warfare was, was 
included. So in addition to sort of what you would call the pure academics, there were academics who also worked in, in practice. There were persons drawn from state militaries. Uh, there were members from the International Committee of the Red Cross. So there was really quite a good cross-section of, of experts of all kinds who would have an interest and knowledge about naval warfare. I thought it was interesting. You noted that they participated in their personal capacity. They weren't there. Those that came from states, from the armed forces or from government, they weren't specifically, weren't there as state representatives. They were there in their individual capacities. Yes. So there was, it's this unusual thing of that when you participated in one of these expert processes, you are there in your personal capacity as an expert, as someone who's worked in the area, but you are not there necessarily representing your state in as much as the positions and opinions that you put forward are not being held to be the positions and opinions of your state. So when an Australian participates in one of these expert groups, they are there presenting their own perspective and opinion. They're not there to state what they consider to be the Australian opinion and they're not to be held to be stating the Australian opinion on a particular issue either. One question I wondered about, and I, I think people might might wonder, given what you said about how outdated the treaty law was, why did they do this by way of a manual, a non-binding instrument, and not by way of a treaty? Certainly in the 1980s, I think there was a sense that treaty law was a bit more of that any kind of action that was being taken in the Security Council was always going to come up against the veto, that Russia and China were always going to veto anything that uh, Western countries put forward. And so there was a sense, I think, that treaty law was not the way to go to get anything adopted. So this was considered more of a, uh, a way in which you could achieve consensus without having to go through the difficulties uh, presented in the conventional treaty-making process. And this was an example of one where you made the point that some of the criticisms that were made, there were a couple. One was the, the issue of lack of geographical distribution and the other that I thought was interesting that you come back to in your final chapter, final chapters on legitimacy is that it was very sparse on detail about the selection and participation of individuals. Would you like to talk a little bit about those issues? Sure. I mean, it, it's you, you can see when you look at the, the list, so some of the documents do include lists of who participated and what their associations are. Some of them haven't. And so when you do look at the, the lists of people who've been involved and where they come from, they are almost overwhelmingly drawn from Europe, from Australia and New Zealand, from North America. So there is a lack of representation from uh, Africa, from uh, Central, and South A- Central and South Asia, and from South America. And why do you think that was? Why did they not try to embrace a broader range of participants? Having been on the other side, having from my own involvement in one of these manuals, partially it is it can be a result of there is just a lack of knowing who to approach to participate because invariably many of these documents come about because experts reach out to people they know. So expertise begets expertise. And so often you'll have someone say, who do we know who works in this field in Nigeria? Who do we know who works in, in Brazil? And sometimes it is it is literally because you just don't know anyone so you don't invite them. That That can be one side effect. Another side effect can be that experts in the field, either in government or in industry, don't think it's a matter of concern for them. They don't think it's of importance or they believe that their interests would be broadly represented by the existing experts anyway. Because 
unlike now where all of these expert meetings can take place on Zoom, 20, 30 years ago, in order for an expert to participate in this, they had to be funded in order to go to meetings around the world. That's time-consuming and expensive. Mm. And there would be plenty of countries who would say it's not a not a financial priority for us. Yeah. Okay, that, that's really interesting. So what the, they came up with was 183 rules, we say in inverted commas, plus commentary. I'd like now to look at efficacy. Now, you've dealt with that in a separate chapter in your book, but I'm going to talk about it with you now. You look at different definitions of efficacy, how you define it, but for the purposes of our conversation, I hope that I'm accurate in saying let's look at the issue of whether it's achieved its aims of actually influencing state and non-state behaviour. And you posit a test for this. You say that in analysing efficacy, you look at to what degree have states and other addressees acknowledged and adopted those are words obviously used a lot in international law context, some or all of the recommendations in their own conduct. And you say it must be, I thought this was really interesting, that it couldn't be an implicit affirmation. It had to be explicit and positive. So what did you look at to determine the efficacy of this manual? Because I was limited to looking at what was publicly available because I didn't actually, one of the shortcomings of this study was that I wasn't able to talk to uh, current serving government officials who work in these areas. It was something that I'm I'm hoping to look at in in larger part in in uh, later studies. I had to look at what was publicly available. I looked at what governments publicly declared as their statement on the particular position of the law. So sometimes that was what they had in their state military manual. So what they had in their documents of instruction that they give to their own armed forces. And then you look at other public declarations made by governments. So you look at things like uh, proceedings in uh, in Hansard, for example. So proceedings actually that happen in the Houses of Parliament. You look at any other statement that's made at the time when something of interest happens. So, for example, when there was uh, the Mavi Mamara incident in uh, in Israel, where there was a flotilla that was heading towards the Israeli coast. You look at the public statements that are made by government officials at the time, whether or not they specifically mention the San Remo manual as being relevant. And you would also look at court proceedings. Domestic and international. Both domestic and international. So you see whether or not the instrument has actually been referred to as either a statement of the law or a source of instruction in uh, government, in, in court transcripts, in domestic courts, but also whether or not it's been used in pleading, say, before the International Court of Justice. And what did you find, Emily? What did you find as to the impact of this manual? By and large, the San Remo Naval Manual is essentially considered the statement of the law of naval warfare, even in the areas where, at the time, it was considered to be a progressive development of the mm. law. So it is absolutely now considered just the, the law on naval warfare. You can see it in all of the publicly available uh, military manuals that are available online. Uh, it's been pled before the International Court of Justice. Uh, it's been acknowledged by the International Court of Justice. It's acknowledged in domestic court cases and governments routinely have called uh, called the manual the, the statement of, of international law on naval warfare. So it's been incredibly influential. Let's talk now about the other category of non-binding norm, those that are created by a civil society organisation. And the one that, that I've picked, one of the ones that you've picked, is one by the International Committee of the Red Cross. 
and that's the 2005 ICRC study into customary international humanitarian law. Let's have a look at that. So that, um, unlike the manual and other ones that you looked at that uh, that did originate from state representatives, this one doesn't. It comes from a particular organisation and therefore, as you make the point, by definition it can't be binding because the ICRC or an international organisation like that has no power to create international law. So that's why that one's not binding. How did this study come, apart, come about? Sorry, I'll repeat that. How did this study come about and what was its aim? The ICRC has a mandate to implement the law of armed conflict in that it's 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 meant to go out into the field it's meant to encourage state parties in armed conflict to observe the law of armed conflict and it's essentially considers itself the guardian of ihl and so as part of that mandate they thought it was going to be worthwhile to look at which parts of uh the additional protocol so the the, the two treaties that were adopted to supplement the Geneva Conventions of 1949, they were adopted, the additional protocols were adopted in 1977. And basically what they wanted to look at was to what degree are those rules customary? Because they knew some of them were, uh, but they weren't sure which. And at the same time, the additional protocols, though a large number of states are party to them, they don't enjoy the same level of participation as the Geneva Conventions do. So essentially it was an aim of saying, is the law as we have it now sufficient because it's either in custom or in treaty or does more work need to be done? It came about because the Com Committee of the Red Cross corralled a very large group of researchers from all around the world, essentially nearly every country in the world, to put together their own state practice. So, for example, you would have researchers in Australia or New Zealand looking at court cases, looking at pronouncements by the government, looking at any kind of official government documentation with relation to the law of armed conflict. They then brought all this information together and then conveyed it to the general editors who then put together this immense study, uh, three volumes, it's about two or 3,000 pages, wow. in which they were finally able to say, we have looked at the practice of 190 states and we can say definitively that we consider this principle to be customary. Mm. So that was published in 2005 and they came up with 161 rules in six key areas which you described. Let's look at the issue of efficacy in relation to this study. Has it achieved its aims of influencing state and non-state behaviour? The ICRC study was a little bit of a, a little bit of a, a unicorn in the sense that when they put it together, the ICRC stated that they were hoping it was going to be a resource for other states to use. They weren't exactly thinking of it along the lines of it being a manual to influence behaviour. They rather no. wanted okay. it to be a, a resource that states could draw on. Yes. But at the same time, I, I do think that there was an unstated aim of trying to influence behaviour because in some respects the ICRC stated that certain principles were customary when there was probably not a huge amount of state practice to actually support the claim of it being customary. And that's been one of the criticisms that's been levelled at it, hasn't it, that it's been more lex ferenda rather than lex lata, that it's gone a bit ahead of itself, I guess, in some respects. Yes, absolutely. That there was some there was some pushback from states that said mm. that the ICRC, yeah, that certain principles were customary when they were really not quite there yet. So I think that while the ICRC said that they weren't trying to influence behaviour, 
there is an element of of probably just quietly saying to themselves, but if we do influence behaviour, that would be great. Yeah, and and you make the point that it, it wasn't long before it started to be cited in international courts, for example, the ICJ, the European Court of Human Rights, as well as national courts, and you give the example of Hansard in Australia. Yes. All right, let's talk now about more generally about these concepts of efficacy, legitimacy and legality and how they are connected. So the two examples that we've picked seem to have been pretty well received, but you make the point, and we can see from your analysis, that not all of the non-binding instruments have been as well received as these two. And you look at some of the factors that influence how well received an instrument of soft law such as this will be. One factor that you look at and devote some time to is the issue of legitimacy. Could you talk a little bit about that, including a reference to what the different kinds of legitimacy are? Sure. So legitimacy is a a fairly complex concept in legal theory, Uh, but at its simplest, it's basically what right does any instrument, does any person, does any process have to demand compliance with it? What is the what is the source of an instrument's ability to command compliance, to command respect. And it goes to the process by which uh, any particular instrument is created, any particular person uh, claims to have a position of authority. It It all goes to what right does this person have over someone else to claim that what they say is correct and true and should be followed. And you talk about the different kinds that you say there's source legitimacy, there's process legitimacy, there's structural legitimacy. Would you like to expand a bit on those? In source legitimacy, a particular instrument is legitimate because it comes from a verifiable and respected source. So it comes from a source that has been, uh, from an entity that has either been democratically elected or has a particular subject matter expertise in that area. So in the examples that we've talked about, obviously the ICRC has legitimacy because of its enormous expertise in the area of IHL and the San Remo Manual has legitimacy because of the nature of the people who participated. Yes, and in the same way that anything governed by the state would have source legitimacy because the state is is considered to be inherently legitimate because of the the nature of society, the fact that they are uh, uh, usually democratically elected and so therefore they are the ones who are entitled to make law. What about this issue of process legitimacy? Process legitimacy connects to the idea of that there was a process by which this instrument was created that makes it inherently legitimate. So either it was created because it was done through a democratic process, it allowed uh, interested stakeholders to have a say, or connected to source legitimacy, the process by which it was made involved persons with expertise in the area. So the process by which this document came, came into being is legitimate because It had participants who were widely representative of those people who were going to be affected by the document. They were people with a certain degree of expertise and that the the mechanism by which this instrument came into being was fundamentally legitimate, i.e. there was a a transparency, there was democratic discourse, there was an openness to the process. I know this is something you were looking for and I'm wanting to know what you found. Did you find a correlation between legitimacy and efficacy? In a weird way, yes, but also no. So certainly that there was uh, mm-hmm. instruments that came about by by process of 
the ICRC or with heavy state involvement were much more likely to be adopted by states because, again, there was a degree of source legitimacy to them. So they're the two examples of the two that we've talked about. Correct. And certainly the instruments that had a a high level of representativeness and a high level of, of participant expertise seemed to do better in practice than others. But there was also a degree of resistance to instruments that had come from the International Committee of the Red Cross. Even though states recognise that the ICRC is, you know, the, the, the guardian of IHL and that they do have lots of experts working for them and that they are the ones who are best versed in the law of armed conflict, there was also a degree of resistance to documents that came from the International Committee, partially because some states believe that the ICRC is more likely to push uh, an overly restrictive mm. perspective of the law. Yes, to limit, limit what, what they can do. do in the field. Correct. Mm. So there was there was a bit more resistance in that respect. So right. there was this weird kind of grudging response of, we understand that the ICRC are the expert on this, but we kind of don't want to follow what they're saying we should do. Mm. That's really interesting. All right, let's look at this issue of legality. Um, and I thought your analysis of this was really interesting. Because the the way you deal with it is you say, I've looked at all this evidence and there's clear evidence that a lot of these so-called non-binding norms do have an impact, that they are being followed by states and by non-states. So what does that mean about their status? Do they have a legal character? Do they have a kind of quasi-legality? What what did you think? What, What was the result of your analysis on that issue? I think what really came through was that they are being treated as legal entities. They're being treated as having a degree of legality to them. And, I mean, partially that depends on how you define legality. Uh, do you define something as being legal because there is a, a sanction that follows from non-compliance, Or do you treat something as having a legal quality because it is compelling a certain type of behaviour mm. and is being called upon as, as evidence of a requirement of certain type of behaviour? And I should and, say we're not going to talk about it here, but there's a really interesting discussion by you of those theoretical issues. Yeah, that was it was one of the harder chapters to write because I'm not I'm not a legal theorist in that respect. I, I I I've not really delved into that in any detail, but I did want to try and find a theoretical lens for understanding mm. it. But the 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 long and the short of it was that yes, these instruments are treat being treated as as legal instruments that before courts, by courts, by governments. Mm they are being called on in, in ways that are very similar to treaty law and mm-hmm. to other kinds of binding forms of law that people say, yes, we absolutely have to absor- observe the law of naval warfare as outlined in the San Remo Naval Manual. And so the concerns are that, that other states have had about the legality and the legitimacy and the efficacy of these kinds of instruments is absolutely is absolutely being held out because states do look at them and go, oh, Excellent. There is a document that explains what we should do. Let's use it. Yeah. And in your final chapter, you look at the consequences of this. And one of the things, you look at the consequences for international law, um, I thought was really interesting. And one of the questions you raise are, are, by the acceptance in practice of these norms, does that mean states are, as you say, abdicating their traditionally central role as lawmakers in international law. So I imagine that's one of the pushback factors from from 
some who are resistant to this, that it's got the potential to sort of upend the whole kind of normative system of international law. That's certainly a concern that that some theorists have. I don't think that that's actually a concern. I think that the 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 international law system as we know it now is is one that has its origins in uh, a particular Eurocentric perspective on the world. And even if you're going to charitably say that international law really that the modern international law system is is really only the UN Charter and beyond, again, that comes from an era where only a few European states essentially had control of the entire world. So for a system to actually acknowledge that there are different ways of looking at the law, there are different ways of creating law, and there are different ways of creating legality, I don't actually think that that's a bad thing, provided that there are safety measures in place to ensure that there isn't just one particular perspective being replicated. Now, that's all right. And I think from, from what I had seen through the study of all these instruments is that there are mechanisms in place. The the actors may not necessarily be completely aware of it at all times, but nearly all of these documents engage in in all forms of, of performance of legitimacy because ultimately they all want to make sure that states follow them and states are in large part quite conservative. So they want to make sure that their, their documents do have an impact. So what you're saying then is interesting. You're, you're saying almost the flip side of that argument that far from being undemocratic, that these have the potential to make the creation of international law much more democratic. Absolutely. They they allow for marginalised and, and, unagno- mm. and unacknowledged voices to have a say in a way that conventional international law does not. You make the point in this final chapter, and you've touched on it just now, that this kind of lawmaking, if you want to call it that, can raise problems, and you talk about accountability, transparency and bias. Could you talk a little bit about the problems that arise in those areas, potential problems? Sure. Well, the most obvious one with transparency is that these instruments are are largely being created behind closed doors. They're not an open process. Not everyone can can just turn up to where the meeting is happening and find out what's going on. So there is a degree of of a lack of transparency for how these instruments come about. Again, I don't think that that's absolutely fatal to the process, but if a hallmark of the rule of law is a transparency of lawmaking, then that is something that that future instruments are going to have to be mindful of. In terms of accountability, uh, again, because they are non-binding, it means that there isn't a, a system in place for addressing what happens if the rules aren't followed. Because again, all states need to do is say, well, this is a non-binding instrument, so there's no, no breach has happened. But as you, you make the point that in other areas of international law, even in relation to binding instruments of international law, there's no sanction. That's, that's not the only test that should be, should be in place for whether or not a law is, is effective and what to do when it gets broken. The other problem, as with nearly every, with nearly every instrument in the world, is the element of bias, that it's only going to be the people who really think this is a matter of importance who are going to start creating these documents. And that can mean that certain voices get locked out, certainly certain voices who don't have the the sort of resources to draw upon to create these instruments can get locked out. Like I said, even with Zoom, there is an ability for everyone to become involved in these kinds of processes. That's true. But again, they still require resources of one kind or another. So it can mean that only the loudest voice in the room is perpetuated. 
Emily, thank you so much for speaking to me about this fantastic book. I found it absolutely fascinating. Um, I loved your discussion. I loved the analysis, the close analysis of the particular instruments. And I have so enjoyed speaking with you today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabberley.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbey, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. It would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon. Thank you.